Today's scripture is from Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 15 to 31. I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. As for you, my flock, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. I will make them in the places surrounding my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who've enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So now we're beginning to hear uh, news about the upcoming midterm elections and all the political theater that goes along with that, right? I think of politicians who speak publicly about any issue that, they have to, that they're asked and how it's a tightrope that they have to walk. They have to balance responding to the issue at hand that they're being asked about, but also they want to build a compelling case for continued support from their constituents. For example, in the Supreme Court justice hearings, the most recently with Katanji Brown uh, Jackson, you know, the, the, these hearings are intended for, to review qualifications of a nominee for the position. But often, they're more about committee members using language that latches on to the fears and concerns of their constituents. Or they use it as a platform for payback for their, against their political opponents in previous exchanges. 
You know, the questions of committee members in these hearings often come across as less about the qualifications of the candidate than appealing to their desired voter base. So in other words, the participation is more for political goals and keeping their power rather than sincere evaluation of a candidate and nominee. At least that's what comes across often in media. And I'm pretty sure it happens on both sides of the aisle. What comes across in these statements and sound bites is a critique of perceived injustices and offenses that they feel they, their party or their, you know, their position has weathered. And often that is all we notice. We get the impression that the best way to respond to perceived injustice and wrongs is to add fuel to the fire rather than put the fire out. And what happens when we, we respond to perceived injustices by just naming them? and pointing them out. You know, regular people like you and I simply lose. I'm reminded of this in other kinds of conflicts that we see in our headlines. For instance, the president recently approved an $800 million uh, uh, in weapons support for Ukraine. And the West continues to place its sanctions on Russia, all in response to these perceived injustices. Who seeks to gain the most from 800 million dollars in weapons. Weapons manufacturers. Who loses the most? Regular people living in Ukraine and in Russia, in the next picture says. Empty grocery stores in Russia and just miserable life in Ukraine. These responses increase the polarization rather than move people forward together. Responding to injustice and offense with further injustices and offenses don't work because they fail to offer a compelling vision of a better future for everyone involved. And because at its root, injustice is a breakdown of relationship. So a true solution to injustice must also address broken relationships. So today we begin a new series entitled Just Relationships in a Just World. And you may wonder about this choice of title, our world certainly doesn't seem so just, and neither do many of the relationships. They don't seem very just either. But over these next two months, we will look at some of these relationships in our world that seem very complex and broken. And as followers of Christ, we believe that the living God of Scripture has something to say about these broken relationships and point forward to a way to restore them. We're going to look at America's history of slavery and what a restored relationship might look like in the form of reparations. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about capitalism and socialism and debt. And we're going to look at issues of just war and pacifism and what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Now, the list of unjust relationships in our world and in our history is endless. But through these series, I hope that we're able to engage with some of these issues and see what Scripture has to say about them, particularly in light of this biblical idea of shalom. It's a Hebrew word that is often translated as peace in English. And in the text from Ezekiel today, we hear about a clear injustice. But we also see God's response to that injustice and how God offers a compelling vision for a future in light of God's shalom. Because shalom in Scripture is more than an absence of conflict. It's more than just a state of being. The idea of shalom in Scripture conveys a flourishing, a flourishing of all 
relationships. So let's jump in. We're going to go about how God names it, how God responds to it, and how God helps us envision a different future. So first, a bit of context. At the time of Ezekiel's ministry, it's the 6th century B.C., in the Middle East there, the northern kingdom of Israel has collapsed. Syria has invaded and destroyed it. There's no one left there. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, you know, where Jerusalem is, they've all been taken away and exiled in Babylon. And that's where Ezekiel now lives. And he's speaking these words to the leaders of Israel. So in this map, you know, they're somewhere in modern-day Iraq. Jerusalem's walls at this point have fallen and their beloved temple has been burned and destroyed. That's the center of worship. That's the center of meaning for the Jewish people. In the surrounding chapters, Ezekiel uh, conveys images of their homeland laid waste. There's a valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37. There's scattered sheep here in chapter 34. There's a land full of strewn weapons and dead soldiers in chapter 39. Life is not good. For the exiles, they're a long way from home, and the future looks bleak. And so though we didn't read the first part of the chapter, God is speaking to the leaders of God's people in verses 2 and 4 here up on the screen. And they're charged with abusing their responsibilities in caring for themselves first, more than the flock. They seek their selfish gain. They take all the benefits and using vocabulary like they're eating the curds, they're taking the wool for their clothing. They're slaughtering the best sheep to eat for themselves. And at the same time, they ignore the weak, the injured, the, the, and, the, and the lost. And they rule over them brutally. That's the wor words used in verse 4 there. The phrase to rule brutally is only found in two other places in the Old Testament. In Exodus 1, it talks about the way the Egyptians treated the Hebrew slaves. They ruled them brutally. And in Leviticus 25, God instructs Israel that they are not to treat another Israelite in that manner, ruling them brutally. Ezekiel continues further, as Phyllis read for us in verses 18 and 19, to describe this inequity between the leaders and the people, pointing out the benefit of the leaders at the expense of the people. And these negligent shepherds here are probably royal and priestly administrators. They're supported by taxation on the population. And it was expected that as the population gave their taxes, that they would expect some benefit from the leadership rather than be exploited by leadership. And so when we come across texts like these, it's very easy to think of the leaders over us, those in, with authority, those with cultural or economic or political power. We, say, we think, oh yeah, those are the guys. Those, they're the ones who are exploiting the weak. They're the ones who are taking advantage of the injured, and adding fuel to the fire. We think they're the ones who are negligent and exploitative. And though God is naming the sins of leaders over God's people, I wonder, I wonder if the same indictment can be said of everyone who benefits. You see, you don't have to be religious or a civil leader to glean benefits for yourself at the expense of those in most need. If we're honest with ourselves, we live in the wealthiest country in the world with the largest economy. And the simple fact that we live and that we shop in America could make us all complicit. Consider this. 50, uh, 
it, we all love our vegetables and fruits, or most of us should, right? Did you know that 70% of farm workers in America are immigrants, and 50% of all workers are undocumented immigrants? Think about that next time you eat your kale salad. You know the beans that go into our $6 lattes? You know how much they get paid, the workers who actually harvest the beans? Child labor is widespread in the coffee industry. And in Brazil, workers get paid 2% of your $6 coffee, so they get 12 cents on your $6 coffee. Think of that next time you sip your coffee. Even if you recycle religiously, only 9% of America's plastics actually get recycled. And those plastics are shipped overseas to the world's poorest countries like Senegal, Cambodia, Bangladesh, and Turkey, and where they can't even manage 70% of their own nation's waste. So what happens? You know, some of us and our children have benefited from a great public school education. And we have benefited from appreciated home values because we've been able to live in neighborhoods that have historically excluded taken over Native American land or excluded non-whites through displacement and exclusive zoning and school boundaries. This is just this area of, this is Arlington, what's called Arlington Heights. That's an area around Crystal City. It's not very far from us. If you think about it, our city is full of federal workers and contractors and public servants, including school teachers and social workers. Many of us work for organizations that are directly or indirectly funded by public taxes. Some of us might even manage budgets funded by public taxes. Are we willing to, to honestly name that the realities of our privilege and how we might be complicit in gaining at the expense of others? It's easy to name an offense or injustice when we see it in others. But how often can we humbly and contritely come before God and let him name it in our own lives? God does this for Israel, and he does it for each one of us, if we're willing to listen. So what's God's response to this injustice? God names it for what it is, but know how God responds in verses 15 and 16. The response to injustice is that God will intervene justly. And that intervention isn't just naming and shaming the offenders, which is what we often see in the news and on social media. In the face of injustices of the leaders of Israel, we find God steps in as the good shepherd over Israel to gather them, to restore them, to heal them. God's response to injustice is restoration. But no, it's preceded by something else. It's preceded by judgment. You can't ignore it in verses 17, 20, and 22. It's up on the screen here. I will judge, I will judge, I will judge. You know, for those who say, you know, I believe in a God who loves, but I don't want to believe in a God who judges, it's really hard to argue with how God is conveyed in Scripture. Scripture clearly describes a God who does judge. In fact, I would venture to say that if we want a, real, a loving God, we probably also want a God that judges. Because a God who doesn't judge injustice and offenses fully, I'm not sure if they deserve to be called God. Because that means some injustice will be left unpunished. We just like the idea of a God who judges others, not us. We like a God who loves us. 
and judges other people. Perhaps the understanding of the full nuance of the Hebrew word for judge might be helpful here. The phrase, I will judge, uses verse, uh, used in verse 17, 20, and 22, is the Hebrew word shafat, which means to pass judgment. But it also means to exercise authority and to rule. And you may recognize this word in the, Hebrew, uh, in the name King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Jeho, which means God, like Jehovah, and Shaphat, which means to judge. God judges. And specifically in Ezekiel 34, this word means to pass judgment with inclusive sense of just and act, actions and rule and governing. To think of a God, the living God of Scripture, who does Shaphat judgment, we must see that God is more than just this judicial judge calling right and wrong. You know, in ancient times, there wasn't a separation of lawmaking and judiciary and executive as we find in modern governments. The living God, we find, is lawmaker, the living God is judge, and the living God is executive who leads, the chief executive who leads. You know, human institutions need separation of power and, and accountability, but God is no mere human, at least the God of Scripture. If God is really a God worth trusting, then God is perfect in lawmaking. God is perfect in judging. And God is perfect in leading as the executive. This is what it means for God to be holy, completely other than, completely separate from what we can ever conceive. God's justice isn't just limited to judging and deciding what's wrong and punishing people who do wrong. God is, as Shaphat, is supreme ruler, is supreme judge, and the one who enforces and puts into practice all decisions, all laws, as the judge and as the ruler. So when God judges, it's always in accordance with the full and perfect character of God. God is perfect in justice. God is perfect in love and goodness and kindness and righteousness. And as we sung earlier, God is a good God who loves us. We see that character described in, Psalm, in Psalms like Psalm 89, verse 14, where uh, the psalmist says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. Love, righteousness and justice are what are beneath God's authority. But what goes forth from God is love and kindness and faithfulness. The, loving, the living God of Scripture does name our sins and our offenses. And the living God also does judge. We need a God who is able to recognize offenses and to judge rightly. But often we get stuck there. We stop there. It's like, well, I don't know if I like a God who judges because of our limited understanding of justice and what it means to punish wrong. Because there's more to God's justice than that. You know, in Scripture, we find that God's Judgment is a ruling decision that is linked to restoration of shalom. That's peace, often translated in English. The German theologian Gerhard Leakey notes how God's shapat judgment is often the means by which God's shalom, peace, is restored in, to a community after it has been disturbed. Judgment is the necessary precursor to shalom. The meaning of shapat is to be understood as a judicial decision, but also as an affirmation of the perfect rule of God and God's authority. 
And that judgment is made over the offender, but also over those who are offended. God establishes and reestablishes and restores for both. For this purpose of shalom, of flourishing in the world. And in verses 25 to 27, we see how God envisioned shalom, at least here for the Israelites in exile. It's more than an absence of conflict. It's more than a toleration of brokenness. It's more than judging the offender. And in light of Israel's plight as an exiled people, away from their homeland and crushed by war, God doesn't just focus on punishing those who offend Israel, though he does do that. Ezekiel does do that in the surrounding chapters here. He promises to judge these nations. But in modern language, we might consider Israel here in this case to be a displaced people group who are experiencing crimes against humanity and they're under, undergoing re-education initiatives in Babylon to wipe out their culture. And for Israel, God paints a picture of a restored people. Despite their situation in a restored land, it is an image of flourishing. They're told about their homeland. The exiled Israelites will one day experience this blessing of covenant. There's safety, there's rain in its season, there's fruitfulness, and there's peace. In other words, they're all going to flourish. All of these blessings that flow from a restored relationship with God is what makes this distinctively a covenant of peace. This covenant is not really a new covenant as much as it is an experience of the blessings promised in the original covenant, what God desired to bless God's people with. But what does this new co this covenant actually end up looking like? You know, for the exiled Israelites in Ezekiel that Ezekiel was prophesying to, they could only see it in terms of a restored and prosperous homeland and a restored temple. They could only see what they knew. God wouldn't just give them something that was like, you're going to be aliens in a new planet with spaceships and have internet in your phone. Like, like that doesn't make any sense to them, right? So they, they said, they gave them images of this restored land led by uh, someone who walks in the footsteps of the great King David. That was their reference point. God couldn't speak something to them that didn't mean anything to them. So for the Israelites then, and for even modern day Jews, their idea of a flourishing shalom is tied to the restoration of the Jewish people back in, their home, uh, in the Holy Land. But how would this flourishing shalom ultimately come to the world? You know, what well, one week past Easter, where we celebrate something much clearer and much more hopeful than they ever had. And it could only be hinted at in Ezekiel's words. You know, on this side of the cross, we discover there's a good shepherd that saves all of God's sheep. This good shepherd is promised by God to be a leader who lays down his life and we find out three days later restores and rises from the grave. This other good shepherd comes to fulfill all the perfect obedience that to God that Israel and King David and all the other kings were meant to fulfill and obey, but they were unable to because of their sinfulness and imperfection and selfishness. And these shepherds that are helping Israel right now, or supposed to help Israel in exile. This other good shepherd comes to name, and this other good shepherd comes to judge, but also comes to envision a new way of living in the world. 
And this good shepherd is none other than Jesus, who says of himself in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Oh yeah, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, is the one sent by God to inaugurate this new shalom, this shalom in all of creation. And Jesus does this by exposing and judging the brokenness of our world and of our lives. Not to shame or demean us, but to respond in the most righteous way towards sinfulness and the brokenness of this world. And yes, he gives of himself on the cross to take the penalty of sin, which is death. But even more than that, along with that judgment comes this rule, this leadership over all of creation that is intended to lead all of creation towards true flourishing in all of our relationships. Not just with God, me and God, but in all of creation. Jesus is the true blessing of God. Jesus is the true shalom of God that leads to restored relationship in all of creation. So the question for us is, do we know Jesus, the good shepherd? Do we recognize his voice that leads us? In a few verses later, Jesus says again in verse 14, I think it's up on the screen, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Do you know Jesus in this way? You know, wherever you are at in your journey of faith with Jesus, he welcomes you into this true and living relationship. It's not just a relationship with the nebulous concept of the divine. It's not just a relationship with some wise teachings from an ancient teacher. It's not just a relationship with spirituality. We can take steps towards Jesus through all these ways. God is so well, uh, gracious and welcoming that he welcomes any path that you take towards him. But unless you get to Jesus, the good shepherd, we'll find it difficult to experience the fullness of shalom that God intends for you and for the world and for your family. Jesus, the good shepherd, secures for us a right relationship, not only with the living God, but begins to lead us in right relationship with ourselves as we know ourselves and with others around us and with the world we live in, as Bethany reminded us in, with Earth Day just having just passed. You know, as we continue through the series, I invite you to consider all the unjust relationships that may burden you, but I want you to, I hope that you can see them in light of Jesus, the good shepherd, who names injustices, who responds with true justice and judgment and righteous authority, and one who leads us into a world of flourishing, restored relationships. Jesus is our shalom and the one who leads us into true shalom. May it be so in our lives and for the sake of the world. Amen.